You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Moldy Chum's Brian Bennett, and we discuss everything from the uh, from the history of Moldy Chum, his involvement with the Wild Steelhead Coalition, political activism to affect positive change, and the launch of his new podcast, Real Pure Radio, that'll go live next week. Hope you enjoy. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, helping our customers to increase their growth while improving the environmental performance of their operations and products. Profit sustainably. So welcome to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. Um, have today is my guest Brian Bennett, um, who I, you know I, I think it's even better. I know obviously Moldy Chum. I know that you've worked for Patagonia, but it might just be even better to just let you run with that. And Brian, tell tell people who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you touched on a little bit of it. Right now, I am kind of Moldy Chum. So yeah, Brian Bennett. Um, I'm the uh, uh, the, I guess the CEO, the CFO, the founder, president, chief bottle washer of Moldy Chum, and that's my primary focus right now. Um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I've worked for Patagonia for almost 14 years. I've kind of been in the combination of the bicycling and the outdoor industry, including the, the fishing industry, since, uh, I'm going to date myself here, since the late 80s. Okay. So I've kind of always been on the the outdoor side of things, uh, career-wise. I mean, most recently, I'm actually a social worker by education, and uh, but I determined, you know, I kind of got into the sales role because sales is kind of really social work. It's you know dynamics and relationships and all those kind of things. So, uh, but I've been uh, I I uh, my primary focus right now is is on the multi chum thing, and then. On the side, I'm also on the board of directors of the Wild Steelhead Coalition here in Washington State. And so I spend, a, I'm kind of on my third term at this point. So one of my principal focuses uh, personally is on Wild Steelhead. And as any, anybody who is a, uh, you know, a member of the Chum Nation knows that uh, we put a great emphasis on conservation issues and taking action on that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there's the, the connection to, you know, being here on the show with you today. So um, looking forward to talking. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, uh, Brian, we were actually first introduced originally by uh, the, the old Tater, the, the, the <laughs> Steve Tater Chuck, who's a great, great guy. And, yeah. um, we had just sort of, he was just like, Hey, you know, I think you guys would probably have a lot to talk about. And, uh, we had a, we had a really interesting conversation. And, and part of that was talking about wild steelhead coalition. And, you know, I'm, I'm based in Charleston, South Carolina. And, um, as much as I, I would love to, I've actually never even attempted to, to steelhead fish, but I know that it's a, an amazing fish. I know that they're difficult to catch, um, but also just from what I've 
watched through movies and just sort of being a, a fly angler over the years is, um, you know, what a journey that they take along with salmon and everything else. But um, can you can you elaborate a little bit more on sort of what the, the Wild Steelhead Coalition, um, what their mission is and, and what y'all are hoping to achieve? Yeah, sure. Um, two, two quick things. One is, you know, there is that, you know, it's the fish of a thousand casts, you know, kind of the musky similar thing. And one thing I would say is that steelhead aren't actually hard to catch. They're hard to find. Oh. And so if, if you get to places where there's still abundance of steelheads, they're, I mean, they're they're quite a bit easier to catch than trying to catch them in some places where you know populations have declined. So, and I learned that firsthand. Uh, I swung for steelhead. I don't know how many times and never touched a fish, and then went up to British Columbia and fished with some friends. And you know, within 30 minutes, I swung up my first steelhead. So, wow. um, it's still not a numbers game for sure, but um, there is that perception. Uh, so the Wild Steelhead Coalition, it, it, it's a great group. It is a uh, all-volunteer organization. So it's run by a board of directors um, and a broad spectrum of people, folks in media, uh, other folks in, uh, involved in various conservation efforts. Jonathan Stump, who is a chairman of our board, works for American Rivers, for example. Uh, Chase Gannell, who's on our board, works for Conservation Northwest. So it's pretty robust group of guys that are really dedicated to returning wild steelhead runs to um, not only just the Pacific Northwest, but the entire West Coast. And that's our focus. And there's a lot of other great groups doing uh, steelhead work, uh, Wild Fish Conservancy, Native Fish Society, uh, Trout Unlimited's uh, Wild Steelheaders United group, which is kind of a subset of TU. Um, what we like to say is the Wild Steelhead Coalition, and we're 100% focused on steelhead. Mm -hmm. And we're nimble. Uh, we're a small group. We're not burdened by, you know, having to raise money for operational costs. Um, so th that's the good news. The bad news is that, you know, we don't we don't have full-time development directors and those kind of things. So we, we tend to operate, you know, at, at a much kind of smaller level. But our goal is we try to build coalitions. We... We give out uh, grants to graduate students to do steelhead research. We get involved in various campaigns and rulemaking. You know, anything that we can do to help uh, achieve that mission of restoring wild steelhead runs, we tend to get involved in. We've had some great successes over the years. We, uh, we were one of the original groups to really advocate for no more uh, wild steelhead kill in the state of Washington. And, you know, years ago, that rules proposal was put forth and then it was pulled back on because the city of Forks, which is in the heart of the kind of steelhead zone on the Olympic Peninsula, threatened to sue the federal government around that rule change. But ultimately, uh, over time, um, the state finally recognized that that was going to be an, that the change needed to be made. And so I think it's two years ago now we were instrumental along with those other organizations to stop wild kill here in the state of Washington, uh, primarily on the Olympic Peninsula. So that was a huge wow. victory for us. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, it's been, um, I, I think I'm pushing nine years on the board now. And uh, it's uh, one of the most rewarding things that I do. And it brings me in touch with, a, you know, a community of people here in the Pacific Northwest that, 
is really fun to work with and really fun to hang out with. You know, the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, that if you look at the Pacific Northwest, um, it is a, it is a, you know, ground zero for a lot of that type of conservation work as it re relates to anadromous fish. Like you look at the organizations here, you look at kind of when the events get put on, you know, who, um, you know, who shows up at those kind of things. It's kind of a who's who of the conservation community around those kind of major issues that are happening out there around the decline of steelhead and salmon, for example. So uh, it, it's a fun place to be in that respect in terms of uh, the, the energy and the work that gets done. And conversely, too, it sometimes can be, as I like to say, like stepping on rakes because you're constantly getting smacked in the face against, you know, the, the, uh, the policies and some of the decisions that get made that kind of work against, you know, all the hard work that you're doing. So, but you're, yeah, you've probably heard that story from a lot of people. Sure. Sure. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think it's great. And I'm all for, you know, I actually, you talk about, you know, it's a wild steelhead, right? So a wild and, um, when we had initially talked, um, you had mentioned the film Artificial, and, and I know that we've, we've had a, a conversation about that. Um, actually, because of our conversation, I brought it to Charleston, and we did a, we did a viewing at Flood Tide Company um, at their office. And, like, it was awesome because we're here in the southeast, right? I mean, a, a large majority of the people here are never going to go steelhead fishing. Um but he, but that was just uh, not that that film was completely about steelhead at all, but just more of the interest and and wanting to get involved and how can we help and oh, I didn't know that hatcheries did this. It was just it was a fascinating way to to bring up an interesting topic here in the southeast and um I yeah I appreciate you bringing that film to to my attention because it really wasn't on my radar until after us having discussed that and uh, really interesting film. Well, and you raise so, and you raise a really interesting point that we deal with on the Wild Steelhead Coalition Board, and I think in general. And that is, I mean, how do we get anglers across the spectrum to help care for those fish that they may not ever have a connection to? Right. So. I mean, you look at, I mean, you look at, you know, groups like Bonefish Tarpon Trust to, you know, do global efforts around trying to preserve bonefish and tarpon and permit. And, and there's, you look at, and the term that I use is charismatic megafauna. And, okay. and so, you know, it's like, why do people give money to save polar bears, right? And, right. And grizzly bears and, Orcas, and that's another whole story that's going on here. I mean, you saw it in the artificial film where, you know, the, the awareness around the threats to salmon and consequently steelhead around the whole subject of, you know, the resident killer whales here in Puget Sound. All of a sudden, everybody's like, we've got to save the salmon because we have to save the orcas, right? Yep. Um, because orcas represent that charismatic megafauna kind of iconic thing that people want to save. Right. Whereas steelhead, if you've never caught one or seen one, um, you don't have that connection. And that's one of the challenges, I think, 
around conservation, at least around steelhead, is that it tends to be an issue that is only addressed by anglers who, who fish for them. So how we can do that, not just with steelhead, um, to get other anglers to help take action to preserve wild steelhead. There's a lot going on with the whole striper conversation on the East mm-hmm. Coast right now with what's happening with stock status and, you know, the, uh, the Atlantic you know, Fisheries Marine Commission, the state commission is getting ready to put in some, you know, fundamental changes. You know, how do you get an angler who may have never fished for striped bass to like, hey, you know, we're part of this community. Um, we could use your help to, you know, send a letter or to submit a comment or do whatever, because as a group, you know, that, as you know, that you can create some political changes relates to that. So, yeah, and artificial, I mean, you mentioned artificial. I mean, that's a, you know, you look at some of these conversations, right? So we've got the whole question of salmon and steelhead, you know, what, you know, threats. And meanwhile, you have this whole scientific discussion around the benefit of hatcheries. And it almost becomes like it's a conversation that's like global climate change. You fall on one side or the other, per se, right? Yeah. There's some, pe- some people in the middle. Um my feeling about all of that, for what it's worth, and I've lived in Seattle since you know, 2001, okay. you know, by every single metric, you know, what's been done to this point has been a, a failure. Um, the metrics bear it out. I mean, there's been victories along the way for sure. But and so at some point it's like, hey, you know what, you, maybe we need to try to do things a little bit differently. And where can you kind of come to those agreements to maybe do those things? I mean, I'll give you an example. There, you know, the state mandated a certain amount of wild steelhead gene banks, which was, you know, certain rivers are going to be designated as gene banks strictly for wild steelhead, so there would be no hatchery um, influence on those rivers. And that plan has never even been fully implemented. And that plan is, I don't know when they came up with that plan originally, but it's been, I think, eight to 10 years ago, at least at this point. So, there's been some movement. There was a group put together that we were very much a part of to kind of look at how that whole, you know, steelhead hatchery management happens and building different portfolios and rivers. And I won't bore you with the details, but, you know, there has been some movement. But, you know, one of the things I've learned is that when it comes to this kind of, you know, the, the fisheries issue, at least here, it's a slow process you know, biological opinions, and it takes years and years and years for things to happen. So I think with any conservation effort, whether it be steelhead or, you know, redfish, where you guys are at, you're looking at that, it's like, you know, what you do today, you know, lays the groundwork and the foundation for stuff that's not going to come to, you know, may not come to fruition for 10 or 12 years and beyond. And so I think it's sometimes hard for, you know, people to kind of wrap their head around that stuff because, you know, in my particular case, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm working on, I probably won't be around to see it happen. Right. But I know that, you know, generationally, you know, I have a young daughter and, you know, beyond, you know, beyond that is I, I want to be able to provide those opportunities to experience those fish, whether it's angling or some other way um, that, you know, generations in the future can enjoy. So, that's that's what gives me hope in the fact that you know what I'm doing now is going to um, 
you know, help that in the long run. But sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that, I think. <clears throat> well, yeah, and, and I agree. And, and, and you know, you, you, you mentioned climate change and um, – that's yeah i mean yeah. right i mean it's just like wow um yeah, the amazon's on fire right now right so that'll that'll help so it's basically it's basically your lungs are on fire your lungs have lung cancer and it, they're it, 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 it's getting very aggressive and uh while we're doing that we're gonna you know light everything else on fire um it, it, but it's the same. That was a great analogy because it's the same thing, right? People have a hard time wrapping their head around. Well, if we do this today, and I'm not around to see the benefit, why do I care? And I think right. that uh, you know, I have a, a ten month old, and having a, I mean, you know, I cared about this stuff beforehand, but now I'm like particularly driven by it. Because it's like you know, I want to I want to have those experiences with her, and you know, I want to be able to show her these things, and um, to it, it's you know, yeah, it, it's it, it's crazy to me, but you know that that's just my opinion. You know, it's just one person's opinion, but um, when you have the well, scientific it, data, it's just kind of like I don't know what we're talking about here, guys. Like. Well, and it comes down to abundance often, right? Like this is one of my theories. Like, you look at it, and I don't, it's not really my theory, but so let's use Pebble as an example, which is in the news right now. And we have the Pebble Day of Action coming that AFTA pulled together yep. here on the 24th, which is a couple of days away. Um, there's abundance up there. It's the largest salmon run left on the planet. It's like, yeah, we can all get along to agree that we need to fight this thing. But you get into places where you're fighting over limited resources, yeah. right? East Coast, uh, red snapper, um, flounder, yep. cod. Like the, the, you, you end up with conflict amongst groups that really should be getting along around it because everybody has a different opinion about what they should get out of that resource. And so it's, that's a challenge, right? How do you, you know, it's like, hey, we're trying to, and even some of the, the conservation groups that you, I mean, I don't to throw anybody under the bus, but, you know, you look at, you know, the American Sport Fishing Association and, you know, their need to, to, to take conservation positions that benefit the business community, mm-hmm. right? Um, because they are made up of, you know, it's marine manufacturers and boat manufacturers and those kind of things. And they want to sell more boats and more motors and do all those things because it's, it's, it's the business of it. But, you know, bottom line, when there's no more fish to catch, you don't have any business. Exactly. And as, you know, as you know, famous quote is, you know, well, I don't think it's his, I don't know if it's his quote, but I think he often quotes, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but you know, there's no business to be done on a dead planet, right? Yep. So it's it's kind of the same thing. And you see groups, you know, that I think are, you know, traditionally you know, very conservation focused, you know, taking political positions for whatever reasons around issues, you know, the Magnus and Stevens Modern Fish Act kind of dust up that happened, you know, last year, um, where, you, where you kind of saw groups who were like, like, why are you taking this position against one of the best, you know, concert, you know, uh, restoration fisheries act and that's ever happened. Right. So it's, it's always that thing. I mean, we, we deal with it here, you know, the groups that are, you know, 
the recreational angling community versus, you know, the which may tend to be a little less conservation minded in the minds of, you know, uh, the fly angling community per se. Right. Oh, so, yeah, yeah I, it's like, how do we crack that code and get everybody to kind of, you know, work together for common cause. Now, my thing is, if you look at it, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Um, you're not going to agree on everything, but there's certain things that you really do agree agree upon, and that's those things. When you overlap those things, if you focus on those, I think you can really probably get more done. And I, it would be whether it's you know within your own community or whether it's with First Nations. You know, we have a lot of First Nations. You know, different differences of opinion around First Nations fisheries here, um, but there's a lot that we agree on. And even with artificial, um, you know, there's been a lot of press lately about, you know, from the tribes here, just, you know, kind of saying, Hey, we don't really, we don't, we agree a lot about what's in this movie, but we don't agree with a lot of it. Um, but the, the good thing is that you're starting a conversation around it and that's what needs to happen in a lot of those cases of all those things that we've kind of been talking about. So, well, yeah. well, well, I think it's part of, part of it is, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one is the elephant in the room is population, right? I mean, growth. It's, it's why we're having resource constraints, you know, 10,000 years ago, when however many people inhabited the earth, I mean, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted, you know, I mean, it's like, you're not, you're not really going to affect the resource, but the more people, the more demand. So that's part of it, right? Because then, then you have all these people fighting over the same limited resource. And that's where you start running into conflict. But I think part of the solution is being just, I guess, an an adult enough to just have a conversation, you know, and you don't have to agree with everyone, but just be open to being like, okay, well, yeah. And, and, and like you said, I mean, find some common ground to be like, okay, well, look, I mean, what, what's beneficial for all of us? Like, is it better for us to exploit this to extinction or should we work together towards a common goal and, and restore the resource? And um, I think that's another that I've sort of read articles about and things lately too, is using those types of words like restore and regenerative and those positive type um, words versus being like degradation, you know, it's, it's all, we're all going extinct and it's all degradation. I mean, that's just like, you just, that's just going to turn some people off. But these people are, you know, they're doomsdayers and that's like the worst thing that can happen is to just be written off like that versus saying, well, you know, no, we, we have an oppor- – this is an opportunity. The same – you know, climate change is probably the big – not probably. It is the biggest economic opportunity of my generation and of the 21st century. No doubt about it, solving that. And so right. when, you, when you frame it like that, it's like, oh, well, we can prosper by doing good for the environment. Okay, well, that's a very different message. And so I think messaging yeah, has a lot to do with it. Well, yeah, and uh, – I mean, there's this whole, I mean, you look at this whole dust up with the Snake River Dams thing right now, and, you know, there's a big push. That, I mean, it always has been to get those four lower Snake River Dams out, you know, just those four, you know, for the benefit of, but now with the Yorka scenario, it's like there's a bigger push, and you look at the competing interests, right? And, you know, it's like, oh, the cost of irrigators and all this other stuff, and there's all this mitigation, 
But nobody's looking at it as like, what would happen if there was an, you know, a much healthier wild salmon run on the Columbia economically, right? Um, I think it's that same thing. It's that short-term view versus the long-term, the long-term benefit. And I think the other thing too is, if you look, I think if you look at, you know, over time, um, you know, the, the science aspect of it. Right, so you see it on the east, on the east side, right, the east coast, where people are like, "Well, the science says that these these stocks are degraded, but I go out fishing and it doesn't look degraded to me." And so right. your science is your science is wrong, and you're going, "Yeah, wait, wait a second, no, 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 not really." And but if you look at like the the, the global climate change thing that you brought up. 20 years ago, if you look at the percentage of people that looked at global climate change as like fact, I don't know the exact number, but if you compare it to where it's at today, it's declined dramatically. And that just has to do with the overall political discourse, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's driving a lot of that. But if you look at the amount of people that identified themselves as environmentalists 30 to 40 years ago, and I have a stat somewhere I can dig it out, but it, it's dramatic how much people have, don't identify themselves as environmentalists anymore. And I think that still has to do with the kind of the messaging around a lot of that stuff as it relates to you know, the industries that kind of benefit from all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, doom and gloom, I suppose. But, you know, on, on the bright side, um, you know, there's groups like that group of kids that are working on the, you know, the, the climate change side of things. I mean, you can look at the Parkland thing and to completely get off a side subject there. But, right, you know, right. that that's, you know, you look at, I mean, political advocacy um, and environmental advocacy is um, that's going to be the roots of, you know, how things ultimately you know, I think are going to change. I mean, myself personally, and people will tell you this, I'm a pitchforks and torches guy. You know, I mean, I'm, that's, that's my thing. I don't, uh, but the re, you know, reality of that to some extent is, you know, it, it's a little bit harder to get things done per se, because you're not really working, you know, collaboratively. It's like, right. this is, this is the way I think should be. And there's people on both sides of that, but you know, I think that you look at, you know, some of those, you know, but you need somebody who's got the pitchforks and the and the torches to kind of rate, help raise the issues. And, you know, ultimately, maybe those more sensible solutions, you know, now become, which may seem radical, uh, don't seem so radical anymore. I mean, the, you know, I think Damnation, the, you know, the Patagonia film pointed that out dramatically in the fact that dam removal was not even in the conversation what, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And look at what's happening now, right? I mean, it's part, I mean, we're, we're on the verge of the largest dam removal project in history on the Klamath. Um, and that's just, you know, that's a fraction of the small deadhead dams that are coming out. I mean, I have an RSS feed for Moldy Chum for dam removal. There's 20 to 30 headlines daily that revolve around ongoing dam removal projects or proposed dam removal projects or people debating dam removal projects. I mean, it's amazing. So I think that that, you know, that, that kind of stuff is the reason why we need to be having these 
you know, hard conversations around certain topics and artificial brings up another one, you know, hatcheries. It's like, you know, you know, should we blow up all hatcheries? I mean, I think theoretically I would advocate for that. Is it realistic? Probably not, but yeah. uh, there's a lot of dead, there's a lot of deadbeat hatcheries out there. And it's like, yeah, starting that conversation now, we'll be surprised where that conversation goes in five, six, 10 years from now. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and Yeah. Well, yeah, and I was just going to say, I mean, t- to your point, too, I mean, on the, the political advocacy, advocacy side of this is you've got to, I mean, ultimately, that's where the change happens, right? I mean, you know, of course, as individuals, you can um, make change, you know, make personal decisions. Um, as businesses, as it relates to things like climate change, you can certainly make your own decisions to, to minimize your environmental impact. And um, But ultimately, what it comes down to is if, if we were all as individuals to call our elected officials and demand action on certain issues, it doesn't have to be climate change, it could be anything, um, but and demand action and, and work collaboratively together, that's where I think change can happen. And I also think that, you know, film is a great medium to get that conversation started, you know? Um, and, and, and I think that that's, uh, I think it's what is, you know, if you care about things like wild steelhead or, you know, what, whatever it may be, um, your, your fishery, then you have a, a responsibility to, uh, defend it and, and let your elected officials know that it's important and that their job depends on it. Otherwise, nothing will change. Yeah, it's funny. You know, that's a really good point. And it it reminds me, well, two things. Um, One is I've had the pleasure of going to Washington, D.C. this year twice uh, as part of uh, an Ocean Conservancy group to go uh, lobby, essentially, for the preservation and the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act and gone with a, you know, different uh, constituencies, uh, New England, Mid-Atlantic groups. uh, I represented uh, the West Coast and uh, Shane Anderson, who's made some great uh, conservation films, came with us. And it's really, it's so exciting. I mean, you actually, you, you, you go through that process where you're sitting down with, I mean, I sat down with the entire Washington delegation, essentially, with their legislative aides and talked about the importance of Magnus and Stevens, uh, you know, thanked people that helped uh, with beating back the threats to it. And then we had conversations around some other things, you know, and it's amazing how much that engagement um not only you kind of go, yeah, you feel like you're accomplishing something, but the other thing you realize is like, this is how the sausage is made, right? Yeah. Yep. Like you go down, like you go into the cafeteria in the, you know, in the house building or the Senate building and you're in there with your group and you look around and there's like 20 people walking around with white canes and they're all there to lobby for the American Disabilities Act. And there is a group of people that are clearly you know, police officers, you know, and they're there lobbying for their, that's how it all happens. And clearly there is, you know, if there's more money involved, you probably, you know, you may actually get to meet with the actual congressman or senator as opposed to an aide, but 
Um, and I've been twice. And the conversations were similar each time, but with good follow-up and offers to be a resource, we've had those people reach back out to us and ask us questions about policy and things that are happening. So um, that I would, yeah, it's, it's, and you realize that you walk into a legislative office and there's two people sitting there and all they're doing is answering the phone and looking and answering emails. And you realize that, you know, and you've probably heard this before when, when a congressional office gets 12 or 15 phone calls around an issue, they pay attention. Right. You know? And so, yeah, we can do, we can, we can accomplish a lot. And how do you, like I do it on Moldy Chum all the time. It's like take action for striped bass. Like I sent, literally, I sent a, 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 it wasn't a canned email. I wrote my own email about why I cared about striped bass to all the commissioners, all the commissioners from Massachusetts because I grew up there and that constituency, the fact that I am a constituent, I go back every year, I spend money there, I'm in the business and I made the argument as to why this was important to me. And you look at what happened, you heard the comments post the meeting that they had on August 8th, and everybody mentioned the amount of letters they received from people and how that really had an impact. So, but I care about stripers. And it's like, how do you mobilize that rapid response group that says, hey, we need you to take action on, you know, this or that and get people that's like, you know what, yeah. I may never see a striper, but I'm part of that angling community and I need to support my fellow anglers, mm -hmm. right? That care about this. It's like, and I, I'd love to be part of that solution. And there's some people doing some really good work, you know, around that stuff, but it tends to be, you know, kind of very regional and very, you know, you know kind of species specific. And the second thing that's, that you're, that you, what you were talking about reminded me of a, a quote, and I'd love to dig it out. And maybe, I don't know if you do show notes on your show, but, I'll dig it up. It's an old moldy chum post. I have a good friend, Sam Snyder, who's been you know, working on pebble mine issues up in Alaska for multiple different organizations. And um, he's written a lot of stuff around his, the kind of the history around conservation. And uh, he made a comment that's like, you know, you, you need, to, if, if you're not willing to get involved, get off the water. Right. Like if you're not willing, like, it's like, you don't, you don't really deserve to kind of, to, to get out there and to enjoy the benefits of all that if you're not going to fight to protect it. And uh, it was, it, it's one of the most powerful, you know, things I think that we've written and one of the powerful things I've read. It's like, yeah, you have a, you, you have a, uh, um, a mandate as a user of that resource to, to get out and to, you know, to fight for it. Um, whether it's, you know, um, and not just yours because we're all part of that great community that, um, we all love. So yeah, get after it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's, that, that's an awesome quote. And, um, actually, and you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, um, but Pebble Mine, um, after. Can I, can I be honest with you about Pebble Mine? Yeah. I'm tired of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just like, can, can please I, stop like, this. Like what? I mean, like, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's just like, man, yeah, this is like, uh, yeah, it's like a bad dream, you know, well, it, rearing its ugly head. So, so as, as we're kind of ha having to laugh about this because it's so crazy that this is like back again, and you're like, oh, my God. 
So, and, and maybe this dates me, I don't know. But um, when I grew up, <laughs> when I was growing up, um, there was this movie, Ernest Goes to Camp. And like, <laughs> yeah. and the whole thing was like about fighting these developers that were going to come and like take over the camp and put, I don't even know what they were going to build. I just remembered that component. And it's like, it's crazy. It's like, we're living in Ernest goes to camp with Pebble, Pebble Mine. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Like, <laughs> this is like, <laughs> stop. Like no one wants this. Like this is the people of Alaska have spoken. Anglers have spoken. What do you, I don't, I mean. I don't know how else to rewrite this. Like, Well, I think there's, you know, one of the things that I feel, I mean, this is, you know, I, again, I tend to lean on the left side of the political spectrum. I grew up in a, in a home full of Kennedy Democrats. And um, I, th I think the fundamental flaw that the Obama administration made around Pebble was they didn't put the 404, they, they waited till the end of his second term to submit the 404, basically. It was towards the tail end. Mm. And what they should have done was they should have taken the risky political position and done it sooner. It was the same thing about expanding Bears Ears that, you know, that decision was made at the very end of the administration. It was very easy for the current administration to unravel all of that. And I think that was the mistake they made on Pebble. Is yeah. that the, the, his, his, and like, it would have been, I guess, the Department of the Interior, right? It was, um, I can't remember her name, but after Sally, Jewel was the, the secretary, you know, an EPA. Oh, actually, it was Gina McCarthy. It was EPA, so it wasn't Interior. Gina McCarthy should have pushed that through, and you know, early on. Or Ken Salazar, I think, was before, prior. And I think it would have been much harder to unravel it. And I think the project may have died, you know, a financial death, which it's kind of been doing all along. But it's just been get, you know, lifeline after lifeline. They've lost all their partners, and now. They've got an EPA and a Commerce Department that is going to greenlight thing, greenlight that thing all the way, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, so we'll see. Um, you know, there's other. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And you look at those threats. The Boundary Waters has got one going on right now. It's another one, right? That's another kind of foolhardy place to to put a, another mine. You know, right outside. BWCA and um, those those special interests are you know very very powerful so it's tough and you look at you mentioned it you've got an entire community an entire industry united against this thing and we've been pushing the rock up the hill for a lot of years I mean I thought I was going to try to pull it up on my computer but you know I've done been doing moldy chum since 2005 and yeah, I wanted I wanted to get into get into that too. So so let, let yeah, let, let's do some history there. Um, because I've been a long yeah. time long time reader and, and everything else, but I, I would love to hear the the story of how that all came to be. Yeah, so I so I, it's pretty simple. I used to be involved in an outdoor industry website, um, called the Piton, and yeah. it was kind of similar, kind of to the early Chum in that it was very much uh, kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, like I, I always just describe the chum as fly fishing meets the onion. Right, and, right. and we tried to be kind of tongue in cheek and it was, you know, we didn't, you know, with cheeky headlines and funny pictures and those kind of things. Well, we had, we had a site, I, I had a site that I shared 
with a with a dear friend. Um, and it what happened was my interest actually shifted. So I was always an outdoor industry guy. I didn't get into fishing until basically 2000. Okay. Um, I never fished as a kid. You know, fishing as a kid for me was sitting on the dock with my grandfather, watching him, you know, drink brown water and then, you know, swinging <laughs> by the store and picking up a trout at the grocery store to bring home. Right. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. And um, fortunately, I had a couple of people that kind of turned me on to it. And I went in with both feet. I mean, I think, the, you know, after I caught my first trout, I think I was 150 days on the water that year. Wow. And I basically gave up everything. I mean, I was a semi-pro bicycle racer. I was a climber. I did all of that. I almost, you know, I gave up all of that to fit. Every free time I had, I was fishing. So the Pete, so because of my interest shift to fishing, and about the same time, interestingly enough, the Drake came out, okay. and that was a real seismic shift in how fishing, fly fishing, was presented. Um, you know, it was kind of like the surfer's journal of fishing. And that inspired me. And because I was, you know, kind of new on the social, not really new on the social media side, but the blogging thing was, you know, really taking off at that point, um, I created it. And um, the, the kind of the way the history goes was it was all me. And then when I moved to Seattle, I partnered up with a guy named Eric Rathbun who had a little brand called Real Pure. Okay. Which was this kind of same thing. It was like how to make fly fishing more, you know, less tweed baggy to use a bad term and more <laughs> kind of relevant and hip. And like, I've got some early discs that he did and kind of, you know, videos that he did. It was like feeding time on the, when the Drake put out that original video. I mean, that stuff was all at the forefront of everything that we see now. Yeah. Um, and it's evolved over time. I and mean, we've gone through two platforms. We went from TypePad to Squarespace. Now we have, we're on WordPress. Um, you know, we, it was the wild, wild west too. I mean, the comments were just out of control and, you know, tro internet trolling, it all lived there. And then what happened was, you know, this is kind of pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram. Okay. Um, and so we've shifted a little bit in that, you know, the way we used to present Moldy Chum is you can find tons of stuff on that all on social media now. Uh -huh. um, you look at the guys that try, you know, that are you know, poking fun of the fly fishing industry at varying levels on Instagram. I mean, it's crazy. They're doing really, you know, the fly fishing meme right? Yep. Like we were, we were doing caption contests before Instagram even existed. So the shift in social media that way has kind of really changed who we are in some respect. And the, the good news is that our engagement, the quality of our engagement is much better. The, the numbers that we have in engagement is not what it was back in the heyday. I mean, if you look at the stats back in the heyday, I mean, we were we were running a quarter of a million of 300,000 page views a month, wow. you know, easily. And now we're, you know, I mean, not giving it away, but we're in the six-figure zone right now. But if you look at how much time people spend on the site, um, you look at the quality of some of the comments that come through. I mean, we're not a forum. We don't generate 
a huge amount of comments. We, we screen every single one of them. Um, it's much more robust in terms of how much people time, people time, people spend the, you know, the site's a little bit different in the old days. You could just kind of scroll through it and see everything kind of like a newsletter almost. Now, if you want to check out a story, you've got to click on the link. It takes you to another page. Um, so, um, but we're doing some things we hope, um, I'm going to, I am going to be at the IFTD show in October. I haven't been to one in a number of years just because trying to get to Florida and the whole, you know, that the whole scene was just kind of tough for me. Um, but I'm going to, you know, come out and deliver some, you know, some media kits to some, you know, brands and show kind of how we're evolving you know, the site even more moving forward, you know, we don't, you know, I know, no disrespect to, you know, people, you know, it's like how to fish pocket water and product reviews and all that stuff. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, uh, uh, you know, our, our thing is to try to be more, um, kind of theater of the mind when it comes to those kind of things. You know, the, the challenge is, um, finding the time to, to do all that and to write it all and that stuff. And that's a bit of challenge for us because, you know, we have jobs and families and pets and things like that. But um, we, uh, we're working on a couple of other projects too, that we think will help um, kind of the entire portfolio. Um, as we speak on a podcast, we have a new podcast that we are very, very close to launching and uh, be super stoked to, to share it with you. And um because we think it's something that's a little bit different than what's out there right now. So, um, are, are you able to share the name of it or y'all, are y'all like still like yeah. pre-launch or what, what's, no, what, what? No, we're close. We're, um, actually it's the first episodes being uploaded. This is exclusive right now. Like, oh, love it. Love uh, it. Yeah. So if you go to the name of the show is real pure radio, R E E L. Okay. And uh, that's the throwback to my original partnership at Real Pure. Love it. And uh, we, yeah, it was funny. You know, we had um, we had kicked around. You know, like we went months trying to come up with a name. You know how that goes, right? Yeah. And just and uh, like we were like, um, my partner at the time, Paul, was like, "Oh, Real Pure Radio." And we're like, "That's it." And um, and our first episode is called Chasing Shadows. And it's a story about uh, some of you probably know Brian Husky, um, but our podcast is very much theater of the mind. It's uh, it's highly produced. Um, it's recorded, you know, live in places. Um, I mean, for lack of a better uh, analogy, it would be fly fishing meets this American life. So, cool. um, you know, Will Atlas just put out a great podcast that was kind of very serial like. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to catch it. It was six episodes, I believe. And it was about a, a story that I remember posting about a moldy chum, actually. But a guy that went down on a fish, like DIY fishing trip down in Mexico and was never seen again. Yep, yep. And, and so, um, you know, it's, our, our theme is kind of similar to that. Although, interestingly enough, you know, Paul and I have been talking about doing this podcast, like the first time we had a conversation, we discussed this concept. So it's been like five, six years in the making. <laughs> um, the challenges, they're difficult to put out. The frequency is very tough right. because it, you, there's, there's a fair amount of writing and production value involved. And so the hard part, you know, and I'm used to moldy chum where, you know, I'm putting content up every day. And so 
you know, to put out one kind of meaty episode a month is probably our best case scenario. Um, we're trying to tweak with some, you know, tweak uh, some thoughts around maybe doing a series of shorts. So where instead of doing, you know, a full length episode around one topic, we could break it up into four shorter ones and we could put something out every week so that we would get that frequency and that engagement that we, that we like. So, um, but super stoked. We're, we're close. I mean, we literally, uh, the website was getting updated for RSS stuff so that once we post the audio, um, the final audio from this first episode, it will, uh, it should be loading up in iTunes and then you'll see the full media blitz, um, going out. So there is an Instagram page. The other cool thing that we're doing with it is we are, uh, we have some really cool, we think some really cool graphics that go along with it. So, nice. you know, each episode will have, you know, a particular piece of art associated with it. And then each particular show will probably have, uh, a, t-shirt and we're just going to do it through bonfire i'm not familiar not sure if you're familiar with bonfire but essentially you can submit a, a graphic and it's a third-party company and it's kind of campaign driven so you know some of the proceeds will go to whatever cause and in this particular case it'll be something to do around you know rooster fish or baja or something that that husky's uh you know involved with um and you kind of commit to it and you know and three weeks later you get your shirt um that's but super uh, cool. we're kind of, it's super cool. We're kind of, yeah, it was funny. I know, uh, digress for a second, but the wild still Egg coalition, we did a save Thompson steelhead t-shirt for, uh, via bonfire. And we raised like close to $5,000 for that no through the bonfire thing. Yeah. It's super cool. So, uh, yeah, we've got a t-shirt with a cool graphic that's, uh, Tequila, ten weights, and tacos. So it's all about you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> with, awesome. a, with a rooster fish background. So I'll I'll send you that stuff. I don't know if you want to drop in the show notes or whatever, but um, yeah, we're we're stoked. And um, yeah, maybe uh, you know, there's some other when we get it, we're good, we're going to do some stuff around conservation too at some point. Um, and this is and this is pretty relevant, I think, in terms of like you look at. You know, I mean, we're having a conversation around conservation issues and those things, and you do a fantastic job with the, the people that do that. But where is kind of that 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 audio where you're you're doing it kind of more of the theater of the mind type of stuff? Like, what are some of those stories behind those conservation efforts? Like, for example, we all know about the Pebble Mine, right? We talked about it earlier. It's like you can't like everybody knows about it, right? But who are the people who, like, what are the stories behind that cause that nobody knows about? Right. Yeah. Like what, like how do you create, I mean, we all have a connection to what we want to get involved because of, but how can you help create some of those emotional attachments mm -hmm. to those people fighting those conservation causes that makes somebody who, for example, you mentioned like never fish for steelhead, but, Hey, I want to get involved in it because I heard something that made me make that emotional connection somehow. Right. Yep. So, you know, maybe a good segue in this whole conversation, just in terms of, yeah. So we're, we're looking at that angle around kind of adding a conservation component to our overall real pure radio uh, channel per se. And I got to give a shout out to Michael, who's, 
our production guy. He does a, uh, he has a bunch of podcasts under Truth and Legend, and they do. They're very. They're kind of uh, more. They're hunting and photography focused. So they do uh, podcasts around sporting dogs. Um, and if you're into sporting dogs, I mean, he's. It's like it's called sporting dog talk. They do a really cool one called Wild and Exposed, which is wilderness photographers, like some of the best in the world that share their uh, trips out into the backcountry. So. Um, so anybody that's listening, I encourage you to go to Truth and Legend and check out a bunch of Michael's podcasts. They're really, really solid, really good. So, and as you know, I mean, you look at kind of that space right now. I mean, I don't know. We may have achieved peak podcast at this point. So, um, <laughs> you know, it might have been. It, it probably would have behooved us to get our podcast out, you know, a year or two ago. But I think in the fly fishing space, it's still very much a uh, kind of a new, you know, genre per se, right? And, yep. you know, you look at what's going on with, you know, Ranella and Meat Eater and those guys and the investments that are being made in that group, you know, they, they're they jumping into the angling community. I don't know if you saw that, but I did, you know, they just yeah. came out. Yeah, so, um, yeah, super cool. So that's only going to help float all boats, I think, you know, as those guys kind of really kind of drive that within, which I think is more, you know, that, that hunting community that cares about angling is going to, kind of get a bigger focus on the angling side thanks to those guys so. yeah yeah i agree and, that, and that's super awesome and so uh, a couple of things um that we've talked about that i do just want to sort of make sure that, that everyone knows um what real pure radio is that right so real is, is it real pure radio.com is it or is it can be found on multi yeah, so I'm, I'll have a banner ad going up on the chum here very soon. It's realpureradio.com. Um, the site is still password protected. Um, so you could actually, you can go to it and you'll see it and there'll be an image there, but you'll ask it for a password. So it's not live yet. Okay. Um, I would expect probably within a week or so, it, I mean, I'm pushing it out. Like I'm trying to, you know, uh, under promise and over deliver. I'm going to say within seven days that it will be live and you'll see a, there'll be a pretty hard push. I mean, it'll be up on, you know, the moldy chum Facebook page. I'll have it up on Instagram. It has its own Instagram page. It'll have its own Facebook page. Um, you know, I, if you don't, I mean, I, I think, um, and the thing is, you know, I like we talked about it, you know, I've been doing moldy chum since 2005. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time, somebody had come to me like, Hey, can you help promote my video? Can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? I mean, I am really like, I'm going to go out and go, okay, <laughs> I've never asked for anything from anybody. Like here's our new podcast. Please listen to it. Please subscribe. You know, we're really trying to build a, we're trying to build a community here. And, um, and also I'm, you know, I'm trying to help. I mean, we have three great sponsors uh, on the first episode. It's, you know, uh, Sage, uh, our friends at Sims, and our friends at Costa. So we've got three really, you know, solid people helping us push it out there. And so uh, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the pitch pretty hard. So if uh, um, you don't go to realpure.com, you'll you'll probably see it. And uh, if you if you follow me at all on, you know, any of my social channels, you'll know when it when it's live for sure. Yeah. 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 No. And, and, um, I'm, I'm psyched to, uh, to help y'all push that out too. I mean, I, I, I appreciate, um, 
you know, just the the first conversation we had, Brian, was, you know, it was just we were just on the same sheet of music and I know that you're totally genuine and I think that this is awesome and I'm happy to um to help promote that and, and share that with, with uh the the tens of people that that, that follow me. But <laughs> uh, yeah, no, trust me. I uh, don't yeah, don't sell yourself short. Um yeah, it's um that's you know that's what I do. I mean, I've always done that. You know, I I, I pride myself on you know networking people and uh, you know trying to help out as best I can. And so yeah, I'm always anybody out there that you know has any questions about steelhead or conservation or social media or uh, you know I spent a couple hours with a friend at a, at a fly shop yesterday working on helping them on the social media side and. Just you know, talking about you know, I 14, 15 tons of experience as a rep. As I was the Patagonia fly fishing sales manager. Um, just you know, keep like, what could you do to kind of improve? You know, working with the staff and how staff can do things. And so, always happy to help people out. Um, you can find me at moldychum at gmail.com. That's my email address. I have no problem sharing that with people. And um, you know, if anybody you know gives us a listen and wants to reach out and, you know, make a comment or, uh, more than happy to, to, uh, respond to that. So, yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, well, before, before we sort of, um, sign off, I have some, just a few rapid fire questions. Oh, is this like the, uh, like, ESPN in the hot seat? <laughs> yeah, kind of, but it's going to be way lamer than that. But it'll be, <laughs> um, but just you know, j- just some random questions, and I'll just try and and just run through them real quick, and and see what kind of response I can get. You got it. All right. Um. So let's start with favorite conservation nonprofit. Well, I got to say, well, it's still like coalition. I mean, it's, you know, passionate for me. I would say that, you know, but I got a personal interest there, as you've heard. Um, but my new one right now is I, I'll, I'll, I got to throw a plug out to the American Saltwater Guys Association. Um, yeah, yeah. I've had good, I, you know, I, I've had a chance to uh, hang out with Tony and John in DC and, you know, the work that those guys are doing on, you know, saltwater and Magnuson and stripers and, all of the above on the East coast is, is really solid work. And, uh, their website, I mean, you, you know, when it comes to education, uh, taking action, all that stuff, those guys are my new faves right now. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Um, so American saltwater guide association, everyone, and also wild steelhead coalition. So check those out. Um, all right. Next is, uh, you're on a, deserted island so you're salt water and uh, you only have one fly to survive what's it going to be oh man (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the first one that comes to mind so it would be chartreuse clouser i mean (laughs) right right i mean i i kind of gotta go there if it was I mean, but that's kind of like, well, of course, chartreuse clouds, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would say, <laughs> depending on where the island is, uh, spawning shrimp. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I think yeah. actually I asked. Uh, I have to. I have to go back. I think I maybe like rework that question. I think I asked Oliver White that, and I think he's for bonefish, and that was his answer. I think was spawning shrimp. Um, yeah, I got a, yeah, I got a, I mean, I was fishing for permit down at ESV Lodge and I'm a, I was a permit rookie, you know, and we were, fi- I mean, it was like, we were fishing the standard stuff, like squimp, 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 like, oh, tan squimp. And I'm like, and we just like, we were like, it was crazy. Like how many shots we had, but we couldn't get the permit date. And I was like, dude, I'm putting on the white spawning shrimp. And like, my guy was like, no, I said, no, 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 no. I was like, no, I'm putting the white one. <laughs> <laughs> So if it wasn't a white one, I'd fish a pink one probably. Yeah. That would probably. So, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what did you have Oliver on? Uh, I, that was the last one that I've. Uh, la- I just released it like a month ago. Um, oh, should I miss? I'm in, I'm in verified air here, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, I, I, like I said, there's literally, you know, tens of people that that, that, that like and share. So you got to um, – it may have been buried somewhere, but um, but we'll yeah. We'll put it out. Why don't you go live with this one? We'll, we'll put it we'll, – we'll share the love. Yeah. All right, cool. Cool. I appreciate that. Um, so, sorry. Uh, favorite saltwater fly island – Spawning shrimp. All right, spawning shrimp, final answer. I think that that is so far, I've heard from two reputable anglers that that's a good saltwater one. So anyone taking notes there, probably a good uh, good, good fly to have in your in your quiver, I guess. Um, all right, and then we'll say one more, and I am just making this up as I go. Um, hmm... What could it be? Um, what about your? Okay, so you love to steelhead fish. Um, what is your favorite steelhead rod reel combination? What what have you? What... Oh, that's a good one. I mean, it's funny. I'm you know I'm not super like I'm not a super gear geek when it comes to steelhead. So back in the day, I got a loop multi setup. Okay. Uh, you know, and that's the other thing, you know, for years and years and years on Moldy Chum, it was like, I never, I, I'm not one of those guys that like, I'm Moldy Chum, send me free shit, you know? <laughs> right, and right. So, um, but I was angling with a guy, friend, Tim Pask, and he was pretty tight with the loop guys at the time. And so they sent me a, a loop multi setup and that's what I fished for steelhead pretty okay. much exclusively. I mean, I have a couple other, spay rods i have a, a sage spay rod and i have a actually a spay rod from the guys at leland's um that they actually gave me too when i was working uh the fly fishing beat for patagonia um but yeah it's nothing it's nothing fancy um but it it gets the job done so yeah that's my that's my go-to rig and i use it pretty much everywhere so i i literally just relined it for the first time last season that's so, killer uh, yeah and i have to say too you know as it relates to the steelhead thing i mean you know i mean i had the opportunity to go to bc a bunch of times you know just again patagonia fly fishing sales manager was able to you know parlay that into some prime steelhead trips you know but the reality is i fished the olympic peninsula or the click or when the skagit was open the skagit 
but the kind of the combination of the frustration behind the conservation stuff and overcrowding and you know to some extent you go maybe I shouldn't be fishing for these fish right because right. there's so few right um, but we do a steel there's a kind of a fun steelhead group that gets out early in January and it's like it's a who's who guys from the you know like come from all over the country and I hadn't been out a bunch I just I just stopped fishing locally for steelhead I just wouldn't do it anymore and but I got out and swung for a couple of days and didn't touch a fish and that's all I wanted to do after those two days was to go <laughs> get a grab and I think I fished a total of eight days swung for steelhead eight days this year and. That was like two days on the upper cleats. It was a bunch of days on the Skagit. Um, and the last day of this year, I finally hooked a fish. Yeah. And never didn't get it to hand, but had it for a while. And it's just, yeah, there's something about that grab, that swing, that grab on the swing and the whole thing that is, yeah, for me, you know, as a guy that started fishing late and, actually learned how to fish in Colorado. So I'm kind of a trout, kind of learned as a trout um, kind of guy. That steelhead thing, and there's, there's something about it, you know. But um, my favorite fishery, though, is is sear on cutthroat. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the backyard fishery here, you know. And it's super visual. It's, you know, there's sea run cutthroat, so you kind of get that anadromous fish vibe going. You know, inch for inch, they're pretty strong trout, right? Because they're sea runs. And, um, you know, a 20-incher is like a unicorn. Um, If they got that big all the time, there'd be thousands and thousands of people here. But in all honesty, I love it because it's it's easy, it's accessible. You can tweak your gear. You know, you're you're fishing, you know, five-weight, four-weight, you know, lightweight stuff. And it's super fun. And... Um, yeah, so that's kind of my new mojo now is, uh, is the sea run cutthroat thing. And, but it's one of the best. It's like funny that I first moved here. It's like, Hey, where do you go? (laughs) Forget it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't, just don't even worry about it. Don't even bother yourself. (laughs) No. You know, I mean, more fun in the boat, but you can do it off. You can just do it off a beach. And so like, Hey, where do I go? The the beach thing was nobody would tell you anywhere to go in the day. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, well, no, it's good to. It's also good to know that um, for, for anyone looking for some sea sea run cutties um, right off the beach. Um, yeah, I think it's. Yeah, and I think it's. You know, if you think about it, you know, the sea run cuts go from northern California all the way up to Alaska, right? So the sea run cuts are so the whole. You know, like the people are. That's like one of the biggest anadromous fish runs on the planet. Wow. Right. And it's also, you know, we we are, you know, talking about sustainability. Um, it's one of the great conservation success stories in the state of Washington. Oh, this is um, so this this is actually perfect. I'm sorry to interrupt you because I was going to say yeah. I thought I was done, but I did want you to share a positive conservation or sustainability story. So this is perfect. So let's hear. Yeah, um, there was a guy named Les Johnson who's. Uh, icon here in Washington. I didn't know less. He's passed away. He wrote a great book on uh, fly fishing for sea run cutthroat. He was instrumental in getting no harvest of sea run cutthroat. It is managed as a game fish. You cannot kill sea run cutthroat. Wow. And they've come back dramatically 
Um, and there's always been, I think, Oregon at one point in time pushed to kind of open up harvest on them again or a few other things. But, I mean, it's it, it's managed as a game fish. So that's a, that's a great story. You know, the great, you know, the other great story is the Wild Steelhead Coalition and the other groups that got involved to, to stop wild kill of wild steelhead in the state of Washington. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a big one. Um, you know, I, you know, Moldy Chum, you know, you, you kind of, you know, one of the things that motivates me, and there's been a, you know, a couple of times where, you know, we've been able to have an impact. And one of those times was when the Pike Place Market, which is the famous market in downtown Seattle, mm-hmm. you've probably heard of where they throw the yeah. fish. Yeah, yeah, I've been right? there. Yeah. They they were selling wild steelhead. There, somebody sent us an email, had a photograph of it, and we posted it on Moldy Chum. We put the email link to where people could contact them, and they cried uncle within a day. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> they were like, whoa, no, made a mistake. So, um, and that happens a bit, you know, like, you know, in this area, if somebody tries to serve wild steelhead on the menu, the, the social media outcry is usually so robust. I mean, generally, most of that wild steelhead that gets harvested here, and it's still a harvested fish, um, gets sent to, you know, Denver and Kansas City and Chicago because nobody really knows that, you know, they shouldn't be eating wild steelhead. So, yeah, right? Yeah, but, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we've done that a few times. You know, we've we put stuff up where people have reacted to the point that people are like, who are you? What, what happened? <laughs> I think there was a, there was a restaurant down in Malibu that was serving wild steelhead. And we, we posted something and the same thing. I got a, actually got a phone call from the manager going, asking me to tell people to back off. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell people to ease up on this. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, know if we have that much pull anymore but um you know we, we try and uh, there isn't a day that goes by where we don't usually highlight some conservation story uh, i think today um as an example um we had you know we usually post four new things a day and we had uh, a piece about the pebble mines overlooked port yeah which was a really good story from Hakai magazine like everybody's focused on the damage of the mine but like like even pebbles going yeah the environmental impact of the port is like alone bad enough to disqualify this whole project and then um we had a post as well about a report that the like the uh federal officials suppressed an environmental document that detailed how the administration's water plan was going to hurt California salmon, steelhead, and beyond. So, yeah. So every day, it usually doesn't a day go by where we kind of, we hit on that. And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, kind of try to, you know, we do. And I think we've also, this is one of the th- takeaways, I think, and maybe a good place to wrap is, you know, I remember you know, when we started, we were the, we were, there was only a couple of us back in 05. It was Moldy Chum, Marshall at Midcurrent, and like Tom Chandler at the Trout Underground and Lee Murdoch at Flyfish Magazine. I mean, that was, we used to have a blogger party at the after show in Denver and it was like five of us. You know? <laughs> and um, I remember, I think it was, I don't know if it was Louie or somebody at Gink and Gasoline did an interview with April on her podcast. And 
that basically said that moldy chum was the inspiration for them to, to start kink and gasoline. And, you know, you look at that and I, I look at the conversation in social media around conservation and how people are focused on it. And I, I think we had a, I think we, we, we had a part in kind of inspiring people to focus more on that. And if there's one thing that I'm probably most proud of is probably that I would say. So, well, um, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. And I've always sort of used the, the, the conservation side of y'all's website just as reference and just sort of a place to see what's happening. And so um, so thank you for that. And I really just want to thank you for your time. I, I appreciate um, everything that, that y'all have done. I'm psyched to hear the new podcast, uh, Real Pure Radio. And... Yeah. I am uh, also really just appreciative of um, the work that you do with Wild Steelhead Coalition, um, as well as just uh, just taking time to talk to w- with me and uh, not only for this podcast but just other conversations. So just really appreciate it, and um, we will definitely talk some more. But yeah, um, I'll, I'll be out at IFTD, so would love to, to to meet in person if if you have time. Absolutely. Let's plan on it. And I look forward to, yeah, you know, someday being on again and, you know, talk, you know, maybe talking about a specific issue or something else, you know, we can take it to the next level now that everybody knows me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, look forward to that. I can really do it. Thanks for tuning in to The Sustainable Angler. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which is now available on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and visit EmergerStrategies.com to learn more about our sustainability and marketing services.